You hear me out there? I have an observation and a conviction I'd like to share with you. I think that the people who get up and stir around on Sunday mornings and get down to the meetings on time are very special people. I think you're a better class of alcoholics. (laughs) I don't know, but I believe someone on your committee invited or asked an expression from me when the what uh, time and the date that I would like to talk. And I always select Sunday mornings if I have an opportunity. And I'm delighted to be here. The only thing is that Joe covered everything last night, and there ain't nothing left for me to say. <laughs> but I'll do the best I can. I'm an alcoholic. My name is Paul. And I began my 44th year of sobriety in this beautiful fellowship. I hope that impresses you. If it doesn't, impresses the hell out of me. But it doesn't impress my wife. And the reason it doesn't impress my wife is she is in her 45th year. My God, never marry a woman who's been in longer than you have. There ain't no future in it. I don't think she pulls rank or seniority, but she manipulates the hell out of me. And the thing that I don't like is I always catch up with it after the fact. I never in the front. And I guess uh, her manipulation brings to mind the, uh, the story about the Mississippi school bus driver picking up these kids and taking them to an integrated school. He got about halfway there, and the white kids and the black kids are fighting, and he stopped the bus. All you kids get off the bus. And he said, I want you to understand that the United States government has passed a law. We don't have anybody that's white and black. We're all one color now. And I want you white kids to yell loud and clear, I am not white, I am green. And they did. Then I want you black kids to yell loud and clear, I am not black, I am green. They did. Said, all you green kids get on the bus. I want the dark green ones in the back. And I think that's apropos how I'm the dark green one in my home. I have an in-house or ritual that I follow. I have never, or put another way, I always talk to my wife prior to coming up to the podium or speaking anywhere. And uh, it's kind of a, I don't know, something that I do that makes me feel good. And uh, this is a this is a very lovely lady. Unfortunately, her health is bad, and she's been immobile and uh, in an invalid for some seven or eight years. But uh, her spiritual condition and her mind and her enthusiasm is just beautiful to watch this lady. And uh, I always listen, in spite of the fact she is my self-appointed sponsor, <laughs> and also my wife. And she said, how are things? And I said, it's just a beautiful conference. It's small, and there's a lot of warmth. And I said, as usual, I've been shooting off my face as fast as I can and getting everybody saved, but uh, 
I'm enjoying it, and the camaraderie and the fellowship has just been fantastic. And I would like to, if I can at this moment, to thank the conference and all the people that have made it possible for me to come down here at their invitation. And I did have got a beautiful room and everything. Of course, I thought I'd have to use a sleeping bag for a little while. But uh, it turned out all right. And so I am delighted, of course, to be a part of the fellowship. And she said, how are things? And I related this beautiful experience. And I said, it's just a very warm and very wonderful group of people. And I said, I just feel very comfortable and I'm delighted to be here. And she said, what are you going to talk about? And I said, hell, I don't know. what. I'm interested in hearing what I have to say. I never know what I'm going to say. And she said, well, don't be intimidated. Don't be worried. I want to give you a little advice. I said, yes, ma'am. She said, don't talk about anything that ain't in that big book, that first 164 pages. And for God's sakes, don't tell any of your corny stories. <laughs> and she said, don't preach. And I said, what else? And she said, be presentable and keep your coat on for a change. And be nice. And I hung up the phone. And I thought, well, oh, what's her name can't tell me what to do. I'm going to take off my coat. I'm going to tell some corny stories. And I'm sure in hell going to preach. You can bet on that. I'm going to have a good time. And thank you all for making it possible for me to be here and to practice these principles. I, in these last four or five years particularly, the Pass It On theme is part of my consciousness most of the time. And to be very candid with you, to stand up here and to look at you people and to think that I could stand up here and say for 44 years I have enjoyed this release from this insanity of alcoholism is almost an illusion. It's hard to, re- it's, it's, it's hard to accept the fact that, that you are here and I am here and that these things that happened in time are reality. I don't think there's anything in the annals of the history of this disease that would make it so that I could accept the fact that we are here at this point in time. Knowing and understanding all of us agree that the human frailties and our self-destructive uh, uh, efforts at times, uh, uh, the only thing that I could say is that uh, the hand of God has been with us from the very beginning. <clears throat> and with your indulgence this morning, I would like to kind of reach back a little bit because I think if we look back, as Joe said last night, we can always then see the hand of God or if we have been in compliance or, let's say, in harmony with his will. And I think some of the things that happened in the beginning give me a deeper appreciation of who I am and who you are and what this beautiful fellowship is all about. And I guess uh, if we begin in the beginning, we'd start with Noah, wouldn't we? They tell me, you Bible people, that... uh, the first alcoholic of record was Noah. He got drunk and God called him to task for getting drunk. Noah said, I didn't know the strength of the grapes. And I guess he put in motion the first denial system you've been working on ever since. But it seems that down through the years, the millennium, the ages, the errands, the alcoholic was doomed to untouchable death or insanity. For some reason, uh, 
best known to God, perhaps. We paid the price for this insanity. No one seemed to be so concerned about it. And so down through the ages we happened. But into the light of day came a series of events. People, places, and things, and the spiritual significance of some of these things are just overwhelming. They are to me. And into my mind comes the first, I think, beginning of people having a consciousness of this thing that we call the disease of alcoholism. When a beautiful young man in New York, a socialite, a wealthy man, whose family had sent him all over the world to see if he couldn't do something about this disease. And he couldn't do it. And he'd been into treatment and he'd been into a lot of human agencies and had fallen on his behind. And they made arrangements for him to go to Switzerland to see the doctor, the great, great doctor, psychiatrist, Dr. Young. And Roland went over to see the doctor and they put him into psychotherapy or psychoanalysis and treatment. He was there for a year. And during this year, he was given all kinds of information, and he built himself up physically and mentally, and he went through all the therapy, and after a year, he left there with high hopes that he had been cured. Cured. Got back to New York, and I don't have to tell you, in a matter of weeks, he was worse off than he had before and demonstrated to us that this is a progressive disease, the physical addiction, the compulsive, obsessive nature of the disease, and he was worse off than he was before. He went back to see the great doctor. And with your indulgence, I would like, to, from a personal opinion, to say this is a man I believe is the grandfather of our cause today and of the reason we're here. And this great doctor, in his wisdom and integrity, said to this young man, Roland, we can't do anything for you. Medicine can't help you. Psychiatry can't help you. You are one of those people, singular people, that is in need of a regeneration. Religious experience. You have an equation, equate your illness with the desire to be one with God. He said you must find a pathway to a higher understanding. Like Joe said last night, and like I'm saying to you this morning, I am and they are, and he was a chronic, real alcoholic. Compulsive and obsessive nature. Life is unmanageable. Non-predictable, he was in real bad trouble, and in the awful descending spiral to total destruction. He left there, went back to New York, and here, I think, is the two things that happened. Here was this beautiful doctor who had a world-renowned reputation for treating mental aberrations and things and had a success record. But just think, here was this man who said, I can't help you. This is beyond medical science, human agency. You need a relationship with God, a higher power. Roland came back to New York, and he got in touch with some of the people in the Oxford Fellowship. Now, it'll be no surprise to you, and perhaps this could be a little controversial, and maybe I am and care less, but our people, without the Oxford Fellowship, none of us would be here. And Roland, through the good offices of Dr. Schumacher, went to the Oxford Fellowship and inquired about how he could acquire this religious experience, this spiritual awakening. And through a series of events, a vanguard of the original Oxford movement, the Cambridge and Oxford people had put together the Oxford group, not the Oxford movement, but the Oxford group, and they had embraced the philosophy that the only way the world could be changed by each person changing themselves.
And they had a series of six steps in the four absolutes as a system for a philosophy for change and the spiritual concept for the pathway to a higher understanding. And Roland embraced this. I can't tell you this firsthand. I was not there at the beginning. I was certainly there at the christening, and I did have a lot of exposure to these people. And I also knew both of the founders, but of course Bob Smith was my mentor, and my sponsor was the fourth man in. So the things that I'm telling you are things that I had not discovered, but has been passed on, and I want it to be passed on to you to be remembered, because these people deserve a place in our memory and our gratitude, because I think the future depends on looking at the past. And so... Our friend Roland did have a spiritual awakening. I don't know if he died drunk or sober, but at that particular time, he took this message to Abby Thresher. Abby fell in love with the idea, and he said, My goodness, I want a piece of that too. And he too went through a spiritual regeneration and took it to Bill Wilson. And he said, Bill, look, I have had a religious experience. I don't have to drink anymore. And Bill, I want you to have a piece of this. And so Bill went to the Oxford Fellowship for a number of weeks and months. And he went through and got this doctrine and he got the dogma and the tenets and so on. And he fell in love with the idea. Now, I'm not going to go into a long harangue about the famed trip that Bill took out to Akron. We're all familiar with that. But the fact is that if you look at the things that happened, Nick the Greek wouldn't give you 50 million to one. That Bill and Bob would have gotten together with their famed meeting. Bill left there. He went to the Mayflower Hotel in a fit of desperation, and he had a number of phone calls to make to find someone else to talk with. In each call he made, he couldn't reach anybody, and he finally read, uh, reached a minister who was part of the Oxford Fellowship and who put him in touch with Henrietta Cyberling, who put him in touch with Anne, who got a hold of Bob, who was suffering a real nasty hangover, and he was a miserable bastard to start with. And they cleaned him up, and they said, you are going to talk to this man. He said, I am like hell, and he did. And so we have Henrietta Cyberling and Anne as the godmothers, perhaps, of the fellowship. And so this meeting came off. Now, just think of the odds of this thing. I stood in the Mayfire Hotel, the exact spot where Bill stood. Twenty feet away are the telephones. Thirty feet away is a cocktail lounge. The glasses are tinkling and the girls are giggling. Good thing it was Bill and not me. We wouldn't be here. <laughs> But the meeting was held. A 15-minute meeting turned out to be three months. The important thing, the spiritual significance of the meeting, is amazing. They went from there to Henry T. Williams to the Oxford people. There they went over to get the spiritual the spiritual guides and the spiritual tools to affect this spiritual regeneration and to learn how to stay sober and put some joy in their life and quality in their sobriety. Now, admittedly, the Oxford people did not deal with alcoholism per se. They were interested in evangelistic society, and it was a Christian movement. But nevertheless, the seeds were there for the spiritual regeneration in the process, and Bill and Bob embraced it, and they shared in it. And Henry T. Williams and some of the people said, you alcoholics are singular, you have ingredients that we can't furnish to you, you had better deal with yourselves and move over and we will sponsor you. And these beautiful people did. Now, this may be a better left unsaid, perhaps, but I have an Oxford manual upstairs. Our fifth chapter came out of that thing word for word. Word for word. The preamble of the Oxford Fellowship is exactly what my friend here read tonight. 
However, when they went over and embraced this fellowship, it became Alcoholics Anonymous. The beauty of the thing, and I think the genius of AA came to light, when we were no longer a Christian fellowship, AA was God as you understand him. Open the door for people like me. No religious orientation, no background, no philosophical, nothing. A tramp athlete on the street. I could embrace this thing with a desire. They said, come along. Think of this. Think of this. Here was this people, they were concerned with saving lives. Saving lives. The gift of sobriety was in their hands. They didn't understand it. They were, they were not so sure that this thing was going to fly. But in this cadre, in this small group, they put into effect these, these spiritual concepts. But when we look back, we see the hand of God there. Human frailty, and from the human experience, we can't deal with these things. But God was there and led us down the road, all the way down the right. It's a fantastic thing. And I think today, when I go to bed at night, and I think of those people that we read about here, the pioneers, the real pioneers... They took spiritual concepts that had never been put to work before and addressed mental aberrations. Think of that. Of course, the, the options weren't so good. <laughs> but nevertheless, they were on their way. And I think it's one of the most beautiful stories that we can possibly think about. This, this new and this experiment of dealing with this insanity of alcoholism with spiritual concepts spiritual concepts. Now, I'd like to tell you, if you would, or allow you, I'm going to tell you a little bit about my own recovery. In order to do this, I'm going to have to transport you back to Akron and Cleveland as it was when I came in. And to be candid, my story is a love story. I'll throw a little sex in to keep you here, but... <laughs> Talking about, about sex... I had a sponsor one time said, young man, he said, if sex is a problem, be grateful to be a day when it ain't a problem. <laughs> if I could this evening, and if you will in your mind's eye, allow me to transport you back to Cleveland, Iraq, and what you would see would be something like this. In back of me would be a big placard. And it would say, but for the grace of God. And in the front, there would be four placards. The absolutes of love, unselfishness, purity, and honesty. These principles, these were the spiritual concepts by which we found a way to communicate with God and our fellow man. The steps, which were now twelve, were the philosophy for change, the absolutes with the spiritual concepts. Not only to maintain sobriety, but to improve your conscious contact with God. And I'd like to tell you a little bit about that as I understood it, as I was taught. And it's the truth as I know it, and you can accept or reject it. But I want to bring it to your attention because I think today that there is a renaissance in AA to return to these basic principles. To get back with what made us what we are. And to be more effective in our relationships and see if we can't bring this beautiful message of release from alcoholism and the gift of the second life and sobriety. And so as I see my interpretation or as my experience, it seems to me that my recovery was in three phases. The first phase was the first two steps which dealt with my disease of alcoholism. 
my recovery, personality change, spiritual awakening, what have you, began with the third step and was completed with the ninth. And the pathway to a higher understanding, the plan for living daily, was the 10th, 11th, and 12th of the third phase. Now, in order to put this thing into its proper perspective, I have to tell you who I am and who I am not. The people in my group refer to me as Killer Keebler. There are those, particularly the new people, who feel that my fundamentalism puts me to the right of Genghis Khan and Attila the Hun. But I believe that my sobriety, my recovery, is the basis of a discipline, a structure. And the structure I want to talk about are those spiritual concepts of honesty, unselfishness, purity, and love. The things that made these pioneers spiritual giants, as far as I'm concerned. And we today are basking in the patterns and the, the success of implementing these beautiful, mystical forces. And so in talking about the first phase of this program, I must place myself in the, the beginning, as it says. And I was raised in a little town over in Missouri. It's a German community. It was an affluent community. And these people were the old German work ethnic. They were not concerned with ostentation or what you had. It was who you were and what your contribution was to your family and the community and so on. And I was raised in that environment. It seemed to me that I had the best of all worlds, and I don't think that any youngster ever had any better opportunities than I did. I came out of a loving home. I was given every support that you could possibly think of. And I had a beautiful young adolescent period and so on. There was one thing in my family that was sort of an, <laughs> I guess it was an unheard of civil war, undeclared. My mother was a southern belle, came from a very heavily religious home. These people had been educators and theologians and so on, and she just felt the world was beautiful. I, I loved her, but I couldn't respect her, but anyhow, her idea of my problem was she refused to accept the fact I was an alcoholic. She said that I had merely fallen in with evil companions. And then if anything happened, if the preacher ran away with the organist, he'd fallen from grace. That's what happened there. So she had this beautiful expression to handle everything. And I just, uh, it was just too much for me. Now, I don't know what this fundamental religious group that she belonged to. I don't know. Uh, I think they were the kind that prayed for the Catholics, you know what I mean. Uh, <laughs> but my father came to me one day. And my father's people had come from the old country some four or five generations, and they'd been manufacturing engineering people, and the work ethic there dominated. When he said Octoon, boy, you Octooned. But he was a queer mixture of this severe, highly principled, hard-bitten, but he had a streak of compassion that just made him a, a beautiful man, but very unpredictable as far as I was concerned. But I loved the hell out of him, respected him. And he came to me one day and he said, Paul, you're in trouble. And I said, I've come. And he said, beware your mother, your sisters, your grandmother, they're going to get you in that church. And he said, you ain't going to have that. He said, the thing to do is don't let them get you. And he said, I'll tell you how you do this. 
He said, all there is to life is this. You become a sportsman, a gentleman, you believe in God, and give the other fellow a break. And he said, that's all there is to it. He said, prayer in church is for the women. Stay out of their way. He said, we're to provide and protect them, but don't let them get in your... <laughs> None of them. I said, okay. Now, I, uh, I took this advice. It was easy. <laughs> the idea of a sportsman and a gentleman, boy, that was it. I believed in a creator, but the belief in God as a personal God, I, I was too, too young and I was not impressed with that. I couldn't understand it. But I sure understood that, that sportsman and the gentleman thing. And I'll say briefly, for the rest of my life up until the time that I went to the university, I did nothing but train and put myself in the hands of coaches and people to become a professional athlete. That's all I dreamed about. My whole world from morning till night was directed around, and this was my life, and I loved it. The sports heroes of the days were my gods. Nothing else mattered. Now, as I was going through this experience, I gained some national attention. Some of the professional teams were interested in universities and so on, and I kind of had a leg up around town, and before the days of television and radio, you sold things by word of mouth. Now, I know some of you mathematicians out there are wondering how the hell old I am. And I'm always asked this question, so I think I'll get to address it now. If I've been in this thing 44 years and I came to AA when I was 8 years old, so I'm in my early 50s. <laughs> so I don't have to answer that question anymore. But there was a clothing manufacturer that picked out kids and furnished our clothes to model, and I did some photographic work. And an automobile company gave me a high-performance car to tool around town, and I put on my dress suit and went through this presentation. I handled it all right. It was the thing we did as kids. Everything went along real well, and I'm saying this because I don't believe that I ever had a feeling of being less than or more than anyone. I traveled wherever I wanted to. I was comfortable with myself and everybody else. Life was beautiful. Now, as a result of this perks and this reputation, I had a chance to pick the fraternity, the school, the college, and I could go on with the story. And I wound up on this campus in this high-performance car, a pork pie hat, plus six knickers, a coonskin coat, and a ukulele. And so I was Joe College. And my fraternity brothers and the coaches came over, and I told them what classes I would take and which ones I wouldn't and who would do my lab work. And so I laid everything out to suit me. That's the reason I'm a Ph.D. today, a poor, helpless drunk. But at any rate, I moved in on this campus, and uh, everything was made beautiful for me, and I was off and running. Now, I threw myself into my activities, or the athletic activities, and the world was just beautiful. And I think I'm going to bring this nonsense to your attention, because it was a moment of truth in my life. In this paternity-like clubs, I had a, a sponsor, and he came to me one day, and he said, Paul... We've got in this fraternity some jocks like you and some scholars, but you all have to be socially adept. There's a prom, you get a date, and a cassage, you pick the girl up, go to the prom, you represent the fraternity, and so on. And I did this. I picked up this lovely little girl, and I went to this prom. Now, they were doing a dance called a Charleston. It was like scrimmage in Notre Dame. You never saw anything like this. It was, the, it was weird. And I got in this thing, and I'm cutting a rug, and things are nice. And all of a sudden, someone introduced me to something called Mystica. 
Now, it's, it's during Prohibition. And what Mystica was was bathtub gin with some anise in it to take the burr off the juniper so you could drink it without vomiting. It was good stuff. <laughs> so I started drinking some of this Mystica. My head got loose, my feet got loose, and I was moving around. I was cutting around. The next thing I knew, the dance was over, the prom was over. And I got in an automobile, and we were on our way somewhere, I don't know where, and then all of a sudden I lost my virginity. I blew the whole thing that night. My social standing, my virginity, and my abstinence. I, the whole thing. Now, if you think you have any doubts about my athletic ability, this was pulled off in the rumble seat of a car. <laughs> she was a hell of an athlete, too. <laughs> But the reason I'm talking about this nonsense is because the thing that happened put me in a position that I couldn't understand. I came down to breakfast the next morning. I had a hell of a hangover. I'd never had one. And I thought surely the people on the discipline committee would take me upstairs and beat my fanny for my bizarre behavior. Instead of that, they were patting me on the back. I was now a man about town. I was now a citizen. I'd been drunk and going to the dance, and I'd had sexual... I thought I had, anyhow. And so now, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a full-grown man now. Now, the thing that was so confusing was this double standard. I had been programmed as a straight arrow as a kid, and this was not the way I conducted myself. And I couldn't understand this. I thought if you did things that were not right, you got chastised, or somebody should take on breach, but nobody did. And it started something in my mind that I couldn't handle. And I must admit that I was not the least bit interested in booze. It didn't give me any euphoria or a release of inhibitions. I never felt I had to take booze to do anything. But the thing that tapped me on the shoulder was these beautiful, fun people. They were loose with each other. They were having fun. There was no constraints, restraints. And I had never known people like this. I didn't know you had fun. I knew something about bed checks and go in there and get your brains beat out. How many fingers do I hold up? And I'd been handled like a piece of meat. I didn't know anything about the world. And so I, I made a real fast decision. I'm going with the high rollers. I'm going with the fun people. I'd have been a hippie if they'd have had them then. I'd have gone joined right away. But this was not a conscious decision, but it was kind of a thing that I did. Now, the thing that came to pass, of course, quickly... My family fell on me, the coaches fell on me, the newspaper people, everybody, what the hell is going on? And I said, you people have been encroaching and kicking me around for years, to hell with you. I'm going with these beautiful, exotic people. And of course, in these Dutch families, they don't subsidize rummies. So I had to go to work. Now, through my family's influence, I joined a beautiful company. In those days, they were picking up tramp athletes, seeing if they couldn't do something with them. And I went to work for these people, and in a matter of weeks, they found out that this was not some soldier, and I was there for keeps. This was my business career. And I flew through into that like I did my athletics. I started back to school at night. I was in a training period, and I was also working, chasing girls in 26, 28 hours a day, and sometimes I didn't even go to bed. I just went to work, bragged about macho guy. I was learning how to drink anything now during Prohibition. And the drinking in those days was a matter of of your entire social life. There wasn't any other kind of life. 
In those days, there were no social drinkers, problem drinkers, alcoholics, or anything else. Everybody drank. We put the booze in the safe at 4 o'clock. We pulled it out. Everybody drank till you fell off the chair, got sick or something. Everybody drank. There was no such thing as, as any kind of control. The only thing that was required is that the civil laws were obeyed and you gave your employer's day's work and you learned how to drink. And this is what I did. Now, as I began to learn to drink, I naturally gravitated towards the people in this company, as we all do, towards those people who drank. And I became pretty well ensconced in the middle management and upper management people with the people who drank. And I played a lot of competitive golf, and I could move a golf ball, so I graduated, of course, into the national sales department, where all good drunks go. Now the company was paying for my booze and uh, the bods, and I could go on from there. It was a beautiful life. Beautiful. All of a sudden, the world affairs, the war clouds were gathering. We became the arsenal of democracy, and everything was dislocated and upside down. And I, as if it's still a kid, but through to the fact that we were in this intense war effort, I had been given some responsibilities up in Connecticut, operations. I was also sent to Washington, the War Production Authority. And I was holding down three jobs. And while I was there, <laughs> some of you people may know about this, I was put through something called a Q clearance. That meant that I was not responsible for and I could not be challenged and thing. And I went where I wanted to to develop certain kinds of information. And I felt that this gave me, uh, I was reporting to the President of the United States only, you know. And so I began to travel and I a lot of non-productive time. And I don't know, but to this day, I never could understand how I could get so drunk on a train. I get on a train to Washington, go to New York, and I'd wind up in Boston. I rode them like streetcars. I could never get off the damn things. And so this kind of life was going on. Now, I was no longer a social drinker. When I got into the meetings, I no longer picked up specifications or plans. I couldn't. I was shaken. When they offered me coffee, I never took a cup of coffee because I knew I couldn't handle it. And it was bothering me. And I think I was, at that point, I don't understand what this means, but I'm going to say that I was a functional alcoholic. I still was working, and uh, I could go on paying my bills and so on. But I had moved away from all of those things that were near and dear to me. I no longer was interested in my family. I was no longer interested in sports. I was no longer interested in anything except covering my behind booze and seeing what I could do during the day to hold down three jobs. And it was bothering me. I discovered something called a, an export ale. It was a split that was dry. And I get up in the morning now and I had to drink three or four of these to cover my dehydration so I could get a drink to get down and eat breakfast. And I began to space my booze out during the day. It was bothering the hell out of me. I had a call from my boss, the head guy in my company. And he said, Paul, I want to meet you over in Manhattan. We have a little meeting. I went over and I said, Hardy, glad to see you. And he was like a wet noodle. And I said, what the hell's the matter? And he said, I want to talk about you. What about me? He said, I got some news for you. He said, I don't work for you. You work for me. And I said, what the hell brings that on? He said, you know, you've been down here in the East for three, almost four years. And he said, you never test my judgment. You don't let me know what you're doing. And he said, you know... Your name came up for our foreign operations. Everybody approved you, and I turned you down. I said, well, you're a hell of a friend. He said, I'm not your friend. You don't have friends. You have acquaintances. And he said, you know, we work this company on the teamwork. He said, you're a loner. 
You're in a vacuum all of the time. He said, we can't build on you. I said, what the hell do you want? He said, you ought to be married. You ought to have a mortgage. You ought to have some kids. You ought to need your job. He said, nobody can handle you. You know, I said, well, that's the kind of company this is. You know, this keeper syndrome, screw it. I walked away. Now, the man had made an impression. And I was concerned. I wasn't sure whether he was right or wrong. So I went to see my spiritual advisor, a bartender by the name of Sparky. And I said, Sparky, here's what this idiot told me. He said, he's right. I said, what? He said, yeah, he's right. And I said, well, I don't want to get married. Who'd marry me? He said, no problem. Be over here tomorrow night. I want to introduce you to a girl from Europe. And Jeff said, you'll love her. Now, as a measure of my insanity, and I don't believe this happened yet, but it did. I met this exotic creature, and one week later, we're married. Now, this marriage was not exactly made in heaven, I can guarantee you. She married me to get her second papers to keep from being deported, and I married her for a mortgage and some kids. So we put this thing together, and uh, it fell into place. And it suddenly dawned on me I had to go to work. Now, this is a little bit like all alcoholics. We all have a, a little bit of conniving in us. When I was in Washington, I knew a great deal about some unofficial embargoes for people that needed a lot of heavy tonnages in the oil refinery and process businesses. And so I went down to Houston area, and I picked up four or five plants on a representative basis, and I began to go back to New York, and I began to underwrite some very heavy tonnages of pipe drilling equipment and fabricated items. And in a matter of a few months, I was making more money in a week or a month than I ever made in all my life, and I'm not embellishing this at all. I didn't know what the hell to do with it. I did that. I'd never been educated to handle money. I came out of a manufacturing home. A ton of steel was a ton of steel. A loaf of bread's a loaf of bread. I didn't know anything about Five percenters off the top or bottom and all this stuff, but there was this money. So I didn't know what the hell to do with it, so I just spend it. I went out to Connecticut and I bought an estate. I went down to the yacht club and I bought a cruiser. I joined all the athletic clubs, country clubs. I went in one day and bought three luxury automobiles with a personal check. They thought I was with the mafia. They were... So I went into business. Now, as successful as this was financially... I began to attract the kind and type of people I had never known before in my life. These were the con guys. These were the get-rich people. These were the people who had schemes. They were always going to do something for you, taking advantage of someone else. I didn't like these people. And the more I got into this, the farther I got away from them. And I began to be hard to find. And my booze was now based around drinking alone, Get to lunch, get back, and that was it. I got a mysterious phone call, went up to Connecticut, and I found out my wife had been under surveillance and she was a spy. Blew my mind. I got the lawyers together, I said, liquidate and wipe everybody out and give me what's left and I'm gone. And I started on that trek that we've all tried, the geographical cure and tour. And all I can tell you is I started at the better clubs and hotels and the descending spiral and sooner or later... I began to feel that impending doom. I was looking for the best mileage I could get for a buck, and I was drinking things and putting in my gut things that I wouldn't put in a radiator of a car. It was getting real tight. I was also now beginning to suffer physically, beginning to hallucinate, and it was frightening. I was now on the street, and then those years and months went by, and I found a haven. Underneath the bridge, the institution was served a specialty of the house called Purple Death. 
This was the bottom out of the wineries. It's as pulpy was dry and you could keep it down. And I spaced myself with that. And the big girls and the prostitutes and the bartenders kept me alive for about six months. Now, I am a hopeless, chronic, unmanageable alcoholic. The paranoia. I thought everybody was out to get me. I had been picked up and screened at times. I had been before the magistrate. I had been once screened for commitment. I would beaten all these things. Now I was not only helpless, but I didn't have any defense about the thing. Now I want to go back and I want to tell you about the hand of God and Paul Keeler. Nick the Greek wouldn't give you ten million to one. This happened, but it did. There came a moment of clarity or lucidity or whatever the hell it was when it fell on me that if I didn't leave that place, I was going to die, and if I did leave it, I was going to die. And without any logic or plan of any kind, I left there below zero with no money, no clothes or anything, and I'm going up the street, putting one foot in front of the other. I felt like I was looking down at my... I was detached. I could hear the whispers and the bells and the traffic, and I was just moving. I didn't know where the hell I was going. And all of a sudden, I found myself in a hotel. The assistant manager saw me and put me in a room. Would you believe it? I hadn't been out of my linens a week. You can imagine how I smelled and looked. No money. And here's the miracle. This assistant manager had no, known of me or something. Anyhow, he put me in there, and he was also in contact with another hotel manager. And some of the boys from Akron were visiting there with an in-law. And they were on their, uh, in Detroit, and they were on their way back to Akron. And this manager said, I got a guy over in a hotel that's in real trouble. Go over and see him. They said, we don't do that. I said, you go over and see him. Now, in a matter of a, perhaps, I don't know whether it's a few hours or what, but in walked these two beautiful guys. <laughs> introduced me. They said, it looks to us like you're in trouble. I said, trouble? I'm dying. What the hell? Are you know. And they said, well, we want to talk with you. They said, we'd like to share some information. Now, in the state of mind that I was in, and the, the mental problems, I'm, I, I look back, and even today, I can, I can almost have total recall of this incident. And we began to talk, and they began to share their drinking experiences with me and me with them. And there was no defense on my part. I, they were looking inside of me. I was looking inside of them. It was the most interesting experience of my life. And as we began to talk, little by little, they came out with words called alcoholism. In Akron. And finally it got around and I said, look, I don't know. What the hell is this alcoholism that you talk about? And they said, well, if that's what we think you are. I said, no, I'm a drunk and I'm not. They said, that's right. <laughs> Gosh. But we too were like you. And they said, what's going on is that as an alcoholic, you have a physical addiction. This physical addiction will never be repaired. It will be there the rest of your life. As long as you live, you'll never be able to drink successfully. No way. Also, it is a root cause of your compulsion. The compulsion takes over your sanity. You can't exercise your will and you're a dead stinking fish. And I looked over my track record. How many times I had gotten up in the morning, I ain't going to get drunk today. I don't have to tell you. I'm only going to drink two drinks. I'm only going to drink corn, whiskey, or gin, or whatever it is. No matter what I was going to do, sooner or later, I was unpredictable and gone. And he said, did you go to your high school counselor and tell him you wanted to be a drunk? I said, hell no, of course not. He said, did you get married and did you do all of these things? You embarrass your family, your country, and so on. I said, no. He said, you're an alcoholic. As an alcoholic, you are guiltless of your behavior and the things that you've done. Guiltless. You are responsible. 
We will show you how to recover, and you don't have to carry this monkey on your back, and this impending doom that's on you will be relieved. You will find emotional stability. You'll be able to get clarity in your mind, and you'll be able to function and join the mainstream of living and be successful and happy in sobriety. And I said, my God, do you think I could that could happen to me? And I said, sure. And I said, what do I have to do? They said, give us a commitment. Now, Joe, last night told you all you needed to desire. In my day, you had to have an honest and sincere desire. And you got into way in the third step. You didn't get into the first two steps. They didn't talk about that. Once you were an alcoholic, to hell with it. You went into recovery. And I said, what do I do? And they said, give us a commitment. We do what we tell you. And when you don't want to do what we tell you, take your misery and go drink some more. And I said, I'll go. <laughs> and what do I do? So I went with the boys. And they said, there's one thing we want you to do. We have something called halt, hunger, anger, lonely, tired. Now, that's too simple for us today. Eighty percent of our relapses is because we violate hunger, anger, lonely, tired. It's a clinical truism. It can be substantiated medically, scientifically, but we overlook it. And they said, that's all we want you to do. And they gave me some peralahide and some rye whiskey for a couple of days, and I got through the drying out period without, without getting into DTs. And I got a one hell of a lot of tomato juice and uh, some old-fashioned sauerkraut juice. It works, I'll tell you. I wasn't sure, but it, it works. I was told to be careful about coughing or getting the hiccups. <laughs> and so the weeks went on, and at the end of four months, I had been sober for four months. I was crazier than the day I stopped drinking. <laughs> Nightmares, sweats. I, I, I was wound so tight, I couldn't buy a newspaper without a fist fight. I just couldn't do anything. <laughs> there was no way that I could remember anything. My retention and attention span was a half inch long. And I was worried. I thought I was demented or retarded. And I went down that evening to, to the meeting, and I saw Paul Stanley, who was to be my sponsor. This beautiful man. Paul was a... It's just unbelievable. And I said, Paul, I ain't going to make this thing. And he said, I'll come. And I said, Jesus, I'm just, I, I, I just know I can't make it. I said, you and Bob Smith and Dodson and all the people and Bill Davis, you talk about the Sermon on the Mountain, the King James Version and William James. And I said, I'm just a tramp athlete. I'm an illiterate engineer. I can't find my ass with both hands in back of me. I don't belong in here with you people. I'm not smart. I'm not just, and he said, well, that's fine. And I said, what do you mean? He said, you don't have to unlearn anything. Now, I don't say that to denigrate our people who have credentials and our intellectuals. I, I think the only real snobbery I ever found in AA was from the Skid Row people. But nevertheless, what he was saying was to put your preconceived ideas away. We don't want to hear about them. Put your prejudices at the door. Open your heart and mind. And I said, Paul, what do I do? And he said, I will be your sponsor. I'm going to take you on a series of spiritual experiences beginning with the third step and ending with the ninth step. And he said, when you have completed that phase of this program, you will have emotional stability, the compulsion will drink will be gone, there will be clarity, you can use your talents, latent or otherwise, and you can think and you'll function. And he said, you will have had a spiritual regeneration. And I said, my God, Paul, even for someone like me, he said, absolutely. 
And I said, how do we do this? He said, the third step, we begin. You're ready. I said, fine, I read it. He said, what? He said, he read it. I said, oh, no. None of that kind of stuff. He said, I'm your sponsor. I'm going to, I'm going to talk to you about the spiritual context of that step. It says decision. And I want to tell you what this decision amounts to. And the decision is the compliance that we're going to ask you to do with all the, your best of your, of your ability. That's all I require. And he said, tonight we want you to say the third step group, third step prayer, down at the group on your knees in front of the group. I said, you're out of your mind. <laughs> what the hell do you want to make me do something like that for? He said, it's real simple. We want a demonstration of your sincerity and your humility. And if you don't want to demonstrate that, take your... I, I'll do it. And I went down and I said the third step prayer that I deliver my will and my life into your care and remove the bondage of self that I may do your will. Now, I can't say that there was any euphoria or any sort of a emotional lift, but when I got up from that, no one laughed. And I think that there was a spiritual energy that flowed from that group to me and me to that group because I was now a member of the group. Now a member. And looking back, it was the beginning of my recovery. I didn't know it, but I do it now. And I said, Paul, what do we do now? And he said, we take a fourth step. I want you to make a list of all your antecedents, your family, your business, social life, and so on, and we're going to examine who the hell you are. Don't tell us all about what you think. He said, what you are is what you have done. And he said, we want to make a list of people, places, and things that you have been involved with that are on your conscience. The things you did that you're ashamed of. And the things you didn't do that you should have done. I said, double barrel, yeah. So I took a look at this inventory, and that scared the living hell out of me. 37 institutions, people, places, and things. I hear people say, I never heard anybody but myself. What the hell kind of alcoholics they are? I don't know. <laughs> oh, I know that alcoholics, as a rule, are destructive sons of the guns. I'll tell you, I was. And so I did this. And I went out to St. Louis and I picked the kid that had caught me. We'd been raising the cradle together. And I said, Rowdy, I need a few minutes of your time. I want to relate these things. And four hours later, I'm laying it on this kid. And what happened was an amazing thing. As I began to relate this, because my fourth step had set out people, places, and things, the shortcomings, and the defects, all had been logged and cataloged. My whole recovery system was in my hands. And as I began to relate this, it was a true catharsis. And I'd pop these things. I had no embarrassing references to make, no apologies or anything. I reviewed it because I had used those absolutes. The absolutes got rid of the nitty-gritty and put me to the flagrant things that were on my conscience that had been keeping me from God and my fellow man. And this was the beginning of the removal of that. Self-deceit was going out the window. I was moving from isolation to becoming a part of the spiritual realm that we call the spiritual awakening. It was a beautiful experience. And when I was there and I walked away and I knew, as I look back now, that the spirit and the grace of God was there because I had felt cleansed when I left. And I went back to see Paul, and I said, geez, I'm all set. And he said, what? I said, I went through the catharsis. I said, well, that's just the beginning. Let's look at these shortcomings and defects. And oh, my God, that too? He said, yeah. He said, you have to give those to God the way you gave your wrongs. And he said, look at it this way. God has expressed his love for you because you got sober. You didn't bring it with you. Where do you think you got sober? It's the grace of God through the energy of the group. It was true. God had been doing things for me I couldn't do for myself. 
And I said, Paul, how do I deal with these shortcomings and defects? He said, you don't deal with them from your own viewpoint. And he said, for God's sakes, don't buy any books on how-to. And you buy a book on how to make a million dollars, how to win friends and influence people. You buy a book on how to make love standing up in the hammock if you want to. But in the final analysis, all you're doing is feeding your own self-centeredness and you get to the point where you're worse off than when you started. And I said, well, if I have these shortcomings and defects, how am I going to get rid of them? He said, you're not. You're going to give them to God. He takes care of these temptations. But there's also something you have to do. There will be no spiritual awakening. There will be no spiritual regeneration until you are willing to go through the restitution and amendment process. Now, I'm going to preach a little bit. I have worked with hundreds of people. We're, none of us, Joe said last night, we are similar, but we are not different in this way. And I think the people who have embraced this program and have done these steps without even understanding them are the beneficiaries of the spiritual influences that we're looking for. And this was a pathway to a higher understanding. And as I got into these shortcomings and defects, Paul said, it's real simple. If you will turn these over to God and you find out through your restitution and amends that you pray for knowledge of his will, the knowledge of his will is that you learn to be honest, unselfish, and pure in your intentions and learn to love. Learn to accept love and to give love. And when you do, you offer life. Life is offered and God is there too. And he said, when you fail to do this, the dark side of your nature opens up and the shortcomings and the defects flood in. Don't worry about your shortcomings and defects. Practice the principles. Now, I would like to tell you that I had found the answer to Paul Keebler's problem with alcoholism, but it was not that way. I had reached that part of the program, the second phase, where I was now enjoying all of the promises. But that ain't enough for us. Not for me. We've got a low emotional threshold. We can't do the things those meat eaters do out there. We have to find this pathway to a higher level, and I needed a set of moral and ethical standards that I had not heard about in the steps. Steps didn't tell me anything about that. And I said, Paul, what do I do? And he said, you you take this moral inventory. Now, what had happened was that I had gotten back into the mainstream of living. And I'm going to tell, tell it my fifth year. And I'm going to call it what I think it was. It was a menopause. And almost everybody I know goes through this. They get back into the mainstream of living. Everything's beautiful. And they suddenly... I was called. Can I make a talk? Well, I'm pretty busy. How about sponsorship? Well, I, I, I don't think I can do that because I think my full attention is needed to the... <laughs> I was drifting away, not from AA, but from the activity. I was doing all right in my social life, my business life, my family life, except there was something missing. I went home, I talked to Kay, and I said, Kay, what the hell do you think's going on? She said, let's get back into AA. I said, hell, I paid my dues. Oh, no. She said, you and I were given... This beautiful, beautiful system of plan for daily living. Let's do it some more. And we got back to taking our inventory at night. Now, I take this inventory. I'm not concerned with my shortcomings and defects. The hell with them. I'm human. What I was looking at was the opportunities during that day that I'd had an opportunity to be loving, to be unselfish, to be pure in my intentions, and to be honest. And there were times when I could have done things that would have been good for somebody else, and I didn't do it. And I took a look at the opportunities that I had that I had passed up, and it scared me. 
And I said, Kay, what the hell do you think is the matter with me? And she said, nothing. You are inflicted with that, that awful disease called apathy and complacency. Those poisons will kill us. We've got to get back an activity of the type and kind where that pathway to a higher understanding is there. And I began to look now for opportunities. And I found that when I was practicing these principles that I felt that I was in harmony with God's will. And when I was up against a situation that I couldn't understand, I asked myself those four questions. Is it right or wrong? Is it true or false? How will it affect the other guy? And is it ugly or beautiful? When is love love? Only when it's beautiful. It's beautiful when it's unselfish and when it's pure and when it is honest. And if I, and if I strive to reach these absolutes not as a goal, my goal is to strive. And if I strive and pursue honesty, I can reach the truth. But when I stop striving, falsity overcomes. In walks the dark side of my nature. I'm back in trouble. So my problem is to practice these principles, these spiritual concepts. And as I practice them, my relationships with God and my fellow man are sound. And I have some self-esteem. Because this is what was happening. My self-centeredness was going down and my self-esteem was going up. And I found priorities and I found a new dimension in living. And I'll tell you what it is. When I began to examine my attitudes and the things that I did as a human being with these absolutes, I found that there was a direction to follow, and I began to structure these things. Because I feel right now, standing up here, that the more that I structure my program, the freer I get. I don't read this garbage, and I don't let these, these alien philosophies and these books that these people are writing. Who the hell are these people writing these books? They want you to do something they want, not you. And so I see in the structure, you, God, and your fellow man. And when you implement it and you go that way, you are entitled. My Jewish friends tell me, enjoy, enjoy, and you're entitled. We're, we have every right to be loving. We have every right to be honest. We have every right to be here on this earth because God put us here as his children. Now... For me to learn to love God isn't so important as I learn to love of something about God's love for me. He loves me for what I am, not for what he is. So I have this dilemma, this paradox. And as I get into my daily affairs with these spiritual concepts, then I find these moral and ethical standards, if you want to call it, become the guide. And the pathway is there. And what goes on? Now, I don't know. Everyone has something that they ingest or internalize. So there's a woman who's now dead, Taylor Caldwell. I think she expressed it best for me in the dialogue with the devil. And she said, the greatest gift of love that God ever gave man was a free will. And I think when he gave us a free will, he gave us a part of himself. And I think this is what we, we in our prayers and meditation, when we seek and find that calmness, it seems that this, that this, message comes through, the intuitive thoughts that we get, and they're from God because they're pure. And when they happen and when they do, it seems that then we're in harmony. Then we're in harmony. The chaos and disorder of the day and the mundane things are gone. We are one with. We are one with. And it seemed to me that as I look back, all my life I'd been seeking. I'd been looking for something. Paul Stanley told me this, and I believe it. He said, every alcoholic has an overwhelming, deep-seated need for a union with God. 
And he's looking for it all the time. I was always looking for it, the new car, the new girl, the new job. And when I got there, there wasn't there. But here I was with a new dimension, a new idea, and it was workable. Now, I would like to say, if you will, and indulge me, and I'd like to close with this. I think that this prayer epitomizes, is the essence of all of the things that I've been trying to so clumsily put together this morning. And I use it to, for a spiritual art of grace in my meditation and prayers. And perhaps you too can find the inner essence of this prayer as I have, and I just love this thing. And it's a serenity prayer, not the two stanzas, but the whole thing. And I offer it, God give us the serenity to accept things we cannot change, courage to change the things we can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Living one moment at a time, enjoying one day at a time. Accepting hardship as a pathway to peace. Trusting he will take this world as it is, not as I would have it. And if I surrender to his will, he will make all things right. That I may be reasonably happy in this life and supremely happy with him in the next. Thank you and God bless you.